judgment in the first five rounds of this fight than he's ever taken in five rounds of any fight. Blood coming out of his nose, Vargas ripping him with shots along the ropes, and Fernando Vargas grins at De La Hoya as they complete round five. What a nightmarish prospect for De La Hoya. The kid calls him out. The kid goes him over a five-year period. The kid finally gets him to take a fight that he said he'd never take. He gets into the ring and discovers that Vargas is so much stronger that he's going to be on the razor's edge all the way. But he's winning anyway. Big left hook from De La Hoya. His best punch of the fight. And he lands it right behind it. Vargas says, come on, come on, do it again. And he does it again. They called the fight bad blood. It was a marketing angle that wrote itself. In 2002, Oscar De La Hoya was in the middle of a decade-plus run as the biggest star in boxing below the heavyweight division, and Fernando Vargas, fueled by some mix of genuine animosity, envy, and obsession, was about five years into a nonstop monologue challenging Oscar's credentials as a Mexican and calling the golden boy out. It was a clash of two Mexican-American U.S. Olympians from Southern California, bringing the two biggest draws at 154 pounds together for a monster pay-per-view event at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas, and it was powered by a bitter grudge. Whether Vargas had truly earned the fight, talked his way into it, or both, it had reached the point where it simply had to happen. Scores would be settled, and blood would be spilled. I'm Eric Raskin, and this is Bloodsport, the story of Oscar De La Hoya versus Fernando Vargas, presented by the HBO Boxing Podcast. A decade before he stepped into the ring with Fernando Vargas as a junior middleweight, Oscar De La Hoya became one of the hottest commodities in boxing by winning Olympic gold as a lightweight in Barcelona in 1992, a win he dedicated to his mother Cecilia, who died of cancer two years earlier. De La Hoya had a story that connected with the mainstream, he was handsome, he was articulate, in two languages, and despite his pretty boy appearance, he could fight. It was a rare package, and it made Oscar the cash cow of the lower and middle weight classes. Larry Merchant, the color analyst for HBO throughout De La Hoya's career, explains the appeal of the golden boy. Oscar was a gold medalist in 92, and he, he was just looked like an American kid, but he was promoted as a crossover star. What did that mean? Well, it was a, a way of telling the media, uh, this is not just another Southern California Mexican kid. Oscar was this beautiful young kid who fought like hell and was articulate and fought good fights and fought everybody. And, but he was an Americanized version of a Mexican fighter. He boxed as well as fought, as well as banged. And the Mexican fighters who made it big in America and were given exposure on American television were variations of Julio Cesar Chavez, who is regarded as their greatest champion. They were exciting. They were tough. They were aggressive. They fought from bell to bell. And here came Oscar 
who seemed to be a little more American, and he was more American. About 60 miles away from where De La Hoya grew up in East L.A., there was a kid in Oxnard, California, about five years younger than Oscar, who was having a rough childhood. Then Fernando Vargas discovered boxing, and he had an outlet. You know, I was mad. I didn't have a father. I had a maggot stepfather. My dad died in an attic. I was a kid that was locked up in juvenile hall, hundreds of hours of community service as a kid, and, and my life changed when I found boxing. I had a reputation. I didn't know how to street fight. When I was 12 years old, I was suspended from school one day, and I was flipping through the channels. What are you going to do at home? Watch TV. Flipping through the channels, and I saw amateur boxing. My kids my age, I was 12 years old at the time, and as young as 8 years old, fighting with headgear and winning trophies. I said, what is What I could do this! Vargas embarked on an amateur career that saw him rack up a record of 100 wins, 5 losses, including national titles and an Olympic berth four years after Oscars. Vargas trained at La Colonia Gym in Oxnard with Eduardo Garcia, the father of world champions Robert and Mikey Garcia. As Robert Garcia told me, quote, Me and Fernando are very close. Him and my dad love each other, like a father-son relationship, end quote. In the early 90s, Robert was a rising pro prospect training in the mountains of Big Bear, California, where De La Hoya trained. And the Garcias got Vargas, still an amateur at the time, an invite to train with Oscar. It was there that Vargas's hard feelings toward De La Hoya were born. Well, look, I always looked up to Oscar when I was a kid. Him winning a gold medal, 92 games, and me fighting my way to representing the 96 team. You know, I had always said that, you know, I looked up to him because he was Mexican from Southern California and won a gold medal, and I wanted to do the same. And so there was an opportunity for me to go up there and spar with Oscar. So I said, man, you know, Garcia, my heifer goes, well, you want to spar with Oscar? You want to go up there and train with Oscar and spar with him? I said, absolutely. You got to tell me twice. So that's a, I'd love to do that. So we got a chance to spar. I sparred maybe maybe twice. You know, one one morning when we were going to go run, Garcia got us up to go run, and then, you know, Robert was with me. I, I, Oscar was going to run with us too. But he got there a little late, so... You know, we waited for a little bit, but we saw that he was barely pulling them, so we we just started running. So I'm running, and I'm following Robert Garcia. Um, you know, I'm 16 years of age. Uh, I think this is before I won the U.S. Championships to become the youngest national champion in boxing history, uh, open division. And um, we start running. I'm following Robert, and I don't know the trail because I never had been there before. So... You know, I'm running through the trails, and and I'm, and I'm following Robert, and next thing you know, I fall, and I eat it, and I eat shit, and I have uh, um, mud and snow all in my face, and and I fall, and I roll, because it's going down the hill. And like, it was crazy, because right when I put my face up, I saw Oscar run by, and he laughed, and he just laughed and kept going so from then on I said you know what and to myself I said fuck this motherfucker one day I'm going to fight this motherfucker and one day I'm going to beat his ass so that's when my dis- disdain started and with with Oscar and and that's why after you know when people tell me you're the next Oscar, they're like, nah man don't compare me to that fool for years after that incident 
Vargas wouldn't tell the story of why he came to hate Oscar so much. But he made his enmity known at every possible turn, in every possible interview. I first interviewed Fernando in 1998 when I was an editor at The Ring magazine, and he'd had a mere nine pro fights and was already calling for a fight with De La Hoya. In one of our interviews, he called De La Hoya a puppet who said only what promoter Bob Arum instructed him to say. He questioned De La Hoya's toughness, his Mexican-ness. But one thing he wouldn't do was explain what went down in Big Bear, perhaps because he knew it would sound to an outsider like an anticlimax. But whether you can empathize with Vargas and understand where his disdain came from or not, the fact is that the incident caused him embarrassment and pain, and he, pardon the pun, let those feelings snowball. Meanwhile, this moment that resonated so profoundly with Vargas made no impression on De La Hoya. I, I, I don't know where he, he got this idea that we were, we were running up in Big Bear, the mountains in California, where I used to train, about 8,000 feet elevation. And apparently we were running, we were younger kids, obviously. Oh, I was like 19 years old. He was uh, maybe 14, 15. And we were apparently running, jogging, about seven, eight miles. And towards the end, he, he fell on his face. And uh, at the time, there was snow. Um, so he falls on his face, and that apparently I laughed. You know, kind of like making fun of him. And I don't remember doing that. I, I just don't recall. Robert Garcia was Vargas's friend, but he comes down on Oscar's side when it comes to interpreting what happened that day in Big Bear. Look, we were running in the mountains, and uh, we were running down the hill, and it was it was uh, during snow season. So Oscar De La Hoya always ran with us, but was always ahead of us. He was always the... Uh, guy leading the crew he, he never nobody ever beat him in running you know that, that's just the way he was so we're, we're all running down the hill and uh, oscar is uh you know not very far but he was ahead of us so fernando tripped and rolled you know on the on the snow did not get injured nothing serious happened but we all laughed we all laughed you know and and, and oscar was ahead of us uh, a few feet ahead of us and uh Turned around and, you know, he seen that Fernando got up and, and was okay. So he was laughing too. But it was, it was, a, it was a case where it was mostly, it was, it was funny more than, you know, we were really worried about Fernando being injured. It was just a funny situation. And we all laughed. I believe, I believe it was more about Fernando in his own mind. It's interesting to note how memories play tricks on people and how Vargas and Garcia have opposite recollections of whether Oscar was behind or ahead of Fernando. Either way... When I talked with Oscar's brother and assistant cornerman Joel De La Hoya for this podcast, he spoke for many outside observers when he asked with a chuckle, quote, why would the hatred be so prevalent because of that issue? Whatever your interpretation of the origin story, Vargas's feelings toward De La Hoya always struck me as genuine. But when Vargas, as a rising pro prospect and then title holder, declared himself a real Mexican fighter and derided Oscar as a phony, there were some who questioned his sincerity, including HBO blow-by-blow -blow commentator Jim Lampley. I always felt that it smacked of opportunism. I like Fernando, okay? I'm, I'm friendly with him now. I was friendly with him then. And I always found him to be up close, uh, a, an appealing personality, and uh, got along with him very well. But I was disturbed by the level of venom and the, uh, I think in some ways, inappropriate 
disapproval that he that he fronted uh, regarding Oscar, and and it felt to me like it was a business ploy. You know, he wanted that fight. He wanted that fight to be big and meaningful, and he wanted, if he won that fight, to come out with a bigger trophy than just a win over Oscar De La Hoya. He wanted to be the Mexican-American fighter, uh, and he wanted to represent a different constituency than what he thought Oscar was representing. Oscar was a nice boy who loved his mama. Uh, Fernando was from the opposite side of the street. Robert Garcia told me, quote, They both talked bad about each other. Mostly Fernando was the one that did all the talking. But it made him a big name, gave him that big fight. End quote. Was it bad blood or good promotion? Or a little bit of both? Either way, a rivalry was building, and it was hard to know how De La Hoya felt about Vargas. Here's Oscar's brother, Joel. That was the buzz of the town, you know, that big rivalry. But I think it was more on their side than it was ours. Until Vargas started, you know, talking about Oscar's uh, identity, you know, as a Mexican or non-Mexican in this case. You know, whitewashed, if you will. Uh, you know, the pretty boy, the guy that you know with the with the silk pajamas. You know, that doesn't train like he's supposed to, like he's hungry. With all this money in the bank, and that was Vargas' his whole thing. That's how he was selling the fight, and we were fine with it. I'm not sure if uh, if Oscar really took it personal, because uh, obviously he knows where he comes from. I'm sure. I'm sure Vargas, you know, had had a uh, had some scorn. You know, really had some uh, some beef with him personally. Uh, I, just, I just didn't, you know, see it that way with us. You know, to us, it was just business as, as usual. If Vargas was trying to get under Oscar's skin by questioning his credentials as a Mexican, according to Oscar, it wasn't really working. I was always, I was always very confident that if, if I stick to my philosophy, you know, if I stick to my philosophy of, um, you know, being proud of, of being a U.S. citizen and being born in the United States, uh, but but being also uh, feeling that pride of, of having Mexican parents, you know, I, I, I always stuck to that message that, hey, it's okay, I'm Mexican-American, I'm no more Mexican than you, you're no more Mexican than me, you're no more American than me, and vice versa. I always just just stuck to my message of, of hey, just be proud, be proud of where you were born and what your heritage comes from. So he was using that for fuel, calling me, uh, oh, I have no, you know, Mexican blood or this and that. And I mean, that obviously worked against him. Remember that in the late 90s, De La Hoya was a weight class below Vargas and had countless other opponents to choose from, including Felix Trinidad, Ike Corte, Pernell Whitaker, and Shane Mosley. That made it easier for Oscar to ignore the trash talk coming from El Feroz. But by the turn of the millennium, maybe he began to feel the stick of that needle. Here's HBO's Lampley, followed by his old broadcast partner, Merchant, on whether the ill will was or wasn't one-way traffic. I believe how could he not have had bad blood for Fernando? Look at what Fernando did to Oscar. Fernando succeeded in making Oscar a pariah for large numbers of people in the community where Oscar grew up. You know, he embarrassed Oscar in front of his own audience, his constituency, and successfully so. And so I, I can't imagine Oscar De La Hoya not seething at night trying to go to sleep about this kid and, and what this kid was doing and, and getting over with in terms of criticizing and uh, ridiculing and making fun of Oscar De La Hoya. 
And it surprised me uh, how many Mexican-Americans bought in and, and the way that, that they did. Uh, so, yeah, I couldn't – part of my um, attitude in, in calling the fight proceeded from my deep belief that this had to be the biggest grudge of Oscar's life. I don't know if it was just one-way traffic, but that's how it was portrayed, that, you know, Vargas had for several years been building himself up as the real Mexican fighter. Uh, and he started to challenge De La Hoya early on, and why not? De La Hoya was the guy who was generating the biggest purses in boxing south of the heavyweight division. And so that was the emotional landscape of of the fight in which certainly it was Vargas who was trying to build it up more and more over over the years, but he saw it coming, and um, there it was, and at, at the appropriate time for uh, Oscar to say, "Let's do it." Before that day could come, though, there was one pivotal fight in Vargas's career that preceded it. Ferocious Fernando earned the spin-off nickname Precocious Fernando from Lampley for winning his first title just five days after his 21st birthday. And in his sixth defense, on December 2, 2000, he sought to unify with undefeated power puncher Felix Trinidad. Vargas was dropped twice in the first round, rallied back to floor Trinidad in round four, and kept waging war until the Puerto Rican icon knocked Vargas down three times in the 12th to end the fight. It was a sensational battle. And it almost certainly took years off of Vargas's boxing career. I don't even remember bits and pieces of the fight. On the way to the hospital, after the fight, I was in the ambulance with my wife. And I asked my wife. I was in and out, in and out. So I go, baby, did it look bad when I went down? She goes, you got up every time. I said, what the fuck are you talking about? What do you mean I got up every time? She goes, baby, Relax. I didn't know that I got knocked down five times and I got up all five times, but that's me. That's the man in me. I don't remember getting knocked down five times, but as long as I got a breath in my body, as long as I'm conscious, maybe I was not fully conscious there, but I was conscious to know that I was fighting because I know that I was fighting. And I couldn't get this guy off me. I was like, like, like in and out, like I seen the whole arena t- turn around like this. I know what type of man I am. I'm gonna give everything I gotta give. This this is no Messerahad. I don't know how to quit. I got. I, I gave everything in that fight that night. I could have been willing to lose my life if I had to to win that fight, but it didn't work out for me that way. But do I feel that? If I had not taken that fight, I would have lasted longer in boxing. Yeah, absolutely. There were many who felt Vargas was rushed into the Trinidad fight at age 22. Vargas was dealing with legal problems stemming from a 1999 assault charge. He ultimately served a 90-day sentence under house arrest. So there was a certain logic to not passing up big paydays when they became available. And as then main events matchmaker Carl Moretti told me, Vargas himself wanted, quote, an aggressive approach. Some said the Trinidad fight ruined Vargas, but Moretti thinks that's an overstatement. It certainly had an effect. I don't know if ruined is the, is the right word, because I think there were subsequent fights after that 
that he looked pretty good with. You know, after that, he fought Wilfredo Rivera and Shibata Flores. Then you had the Oscar fight. Then after that, you had wins over some of the guys. So he didn't really look, you know, like a fighter that shouldn't be fighting or anything like that. Are you the same fighter? Probably not. But I don't think it's the the matter of... um, you know, he shouldn't be fighting at all. Did it take something out of him? There's no question it does. But, you know, you got to add with that the fights, but the, you know, the eight-week training camps, the sparring, the training, all that stuff takes away from all fighters. Lampley has much stronger feelings than Moretti about the impact of the knockout defeat to Tito Trinidad. I think not only was Fernando never the same after the Trinidad fight, but I don't know of any other fighter uh, whose career was as as marked and as damaged by one punch as as Fernando's was by the low blow in the fourth round. I think it was the most purposeful and meaningful low blow I've ever covered. As the fourth round progressed, you could see that it was Vargas who was now landing the meaningful punches, and when he knocked Trinidad down with a left hook, you're thinking, okay, here we go. And there's no more than... 10 or 15 seconds from that moment until the moment when Felix hits him right in the cup uh, and, you know, and stopped his momentum. And I think that that night and that turning point, that low blow, to a certain degree, wrecked Fernando's career. While Vargas was working his way back from his first defeat, De La Hoya was making changes. Having lost highly controversially to Trinidad in 1999 and closely to Shane Mosley in 2000, In 2001, the Golden Boy moved up from welterweight to junior middleweight and captured an alphabet belt from Javier Castillejo, and he hired a new trainer, Floyd Mayweather Sr., to replace Robert Alcazar. Here's Larry Merchant. Oscar changed trainers the way some guys change underwear. I mean, he he had a lot of them. And it was always because he somehow felt that he could have been better. And there was... I don't know, a Jekyll and Hyde thing about Oscar. When he fought, he was really good and exciting. And, and then when he boxed, it was like he was, he was being held back in some way. There are always people, including Oscar, trying to make Oscar better. <laughs> it was just part of his profile. And of course, if you hire Floyd Mayweather Sr., what you're trying to do is control the match with your mind as well as your fists. Mayweather was still a decade away from the dramatic argument with his son that would become perhaps the most memorable scene in the history of HBO's 24-7. But he had already established a reputation as an outspoken, sometimes abrasive character by the time Oscar hired him. Here's Jim Lampley. I never understood the the Oscar Delaware marriage with Floyd uh, Mayweather Sr. I think that Oscar was searching all the time for uh, the right trainer for him. And... Uh, I think he probably understood that Robert Alcazar was not the be-all and end-all of of trainers, that that most fighters of his talent level and his public persona had a more accomplished trainer than than Robert Alcazar. And, uh, you know, who knows what goes on in gyms between fighters and trainers that ultimately leads to that kind of counterintuitive marriage. I don't know now, and I didn't know then why it was that Oscar hooked up with Floyd Mayweather Sr., other than probably Floyd Mayweather Sr., who has the gift of gab, somehow 
got into his ear and said, dude, you don't defend worth a flying flip. <laughs> and I need to show you how to dodge a punch every once in a while. Because that was certainly what Floyd sold as a trainer, was the was the belief that he was a more sophisticated teacher of defense than uh, than other people would be. Ironically, Mayweather's signature defensive move, the shoulder roll maneuver perfected by his son, only made occasional appearances in Oscar's arsenal during fights. You know what? We had a, an understanding, me and Floyd, that I wasn't going to use the shoulder roll because it never worked for me. I just it, it just didn't work for me. I didn't I didn't I didn't really appreciate it as much. Um, I have more of a classic with your guard up, uh, both fists protecting your face. But what he did teach me was, first of all, he got me in great shape. I mean, he was very military when it came to waking up in the morning, training. I would run with boots, with combat boots um, every single day. He was very strict. The regimen was just, I mean, incredible. But he did teach me how to throw different combinations. Uh, uh, my defense was tighter. My jabs were just impeccable when I was with him because he would have me throw so many jabs during training. He would always tell me, uh, you have to throw minimum 50 jabs per round. That's just a jab. Here's Joel De La Hoya sharing memories of the partnership between Oscar and Floyd Sr. I mean, I remember interviewing, uh, we were at, the, at, at Oscar's office. We would interview different coaches and they'd give us their 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 insight, their input on, on what they could do with Oscar. And, and we were like, okay, that, you know, that sounds good. Fine. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll call you. Don't call us. And, uh, and then Floyd came in and the first thing he does is, uh, he tells Oscar to stand up and you know, we're all sitting down around the table, the conference table. And he tells Oscar to stand up and he, he tells him to throw a jab and Floyd starts, uh, you know, with his movements and blocking and fainting and this and that and the other. And Oscar's like, whoa, kind of like in shock. Like, what did I get myself into? And my, me and my dad just kind of looked at each other and we're like, okay, this guy's actually physically teaching Oscar something right now as we're speaking. That's a good thing. I think Oscar really respected Floyd. I mean, he respected everyone. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, he really liked Floyd. Because uh, Floyd really... You know, it was was uh, it was almost a, a father figure type of relationship. You know, because we know how junior and 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 senior at the time weren't getting along, and I think uh, Floyd was looking for for that type of relationship, and he may have found it with Oscar. And you know, I, my dad and Oscar obviously, you know, they had their ups and downs, and he may have been looking, you know, for some respect from uh, a father figure as well, and uh, he may have found that with Floyd as well. The more things changed, Oscar had a new trainer and a couple of defeats on his record, Fernando Vargas was also no longer unbeaten, one thing stayed the same. Vargas kept talking smack about Oscar, angling for a showdown. Finally, in early 2002, they signed to fight each other. And at a press conference announcing the May 4th pay-per-view event, Vargas escalated his attack from verbal to physical, shoving De La Hoya the first time they were positioned face-to-face. Oscar recalls the incident. I understood um, what he was trying to do. You know, he he has to fight angry. He has to have some type of motivation for himself to 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 fight uh, with with that with that passion that he does. Um, but I was I was a I was always a fighter that was cool, calm, and collective. That's it. But he pushed me like really hard, and that kind of started, 
you know, kind of got under my skin a bit. So from that moment on, when he pushed me, I remember training every single day, wanting to knock him out because of that push. If Oscar wanted to knock Vargas out, he was going to have to wait four months longer than he'd planned. Or maybe he was going to choose to wait four months longer. Matchmaker Carl Moretti explains. It was originally scheduled for May. And, you know, De La Hoya, quote unquote, suffered a hand injury, you know, which I, I literally got off the plane from the training camp with Vargas. I landed and my phone blew up saying, you know, the fight's off. I said, what do you mean the fight's off and all this? And De La Hoya supposedly had a hand injury and it was rescheduled September. And the unfortunate thing is Vargas was looking tremendous in that camp. I just literally saw it. You know, sparring partners, conditioning, weight, everything was on mark. And to stop that, have to get out of camp, you know, and pick it up again in September is not easy to do. But that's, you know, that's exactly what happened. And, and uh, you know, we move on to the fight in September as opposed to May. I mean, I mean, look, they were, they were both up in Big Bear, which is ironic, you know, because it's such a small community and you see things and you hear things. And let's just say Oscar wasn't having the greatest camp of his life and combine that with the hand injury, hence you have the pullout. You know, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> the postponement extended the longest inactive streak of De La Hoya's career, 447 days by the time of the rescheduled September 14th date. And by the time training resumed, there was something very different in Vargas's camp. In addition to conditioning coach John Philbin, who'd been with Fernando for several camps, Vargas added a nutritionist from New Jersey with a bodybuilding background, Mazen Ali, to the team. According to Robert Garcia, Ali's presence was problematic from the start. One thing that I that I could tell you is that that moment when Fernando brought in uh, an, an, another uh, conditioning coach, I don't remember his name. He was from New Jersey, I believe, somewhere in the East Coast. So he brought in that guy. And uh, Fernando really paid attention to this guy instead of everything else. There was moments where my dad, my dad would uh, would tell Fernando, Fernando, you have to, uh, we have to run, we have to do some sprints, we have to run the mountains. And Fernando would tell my dad, oh, don't worry, this guy knows what he's doing, this guy knows what he's doing. And he was working with Fernando a lot on on building up his body. You know, Fernando's intention was to look solid, to look ripped. And this guy was did, did exactly what Fernando wanted. He just worked on make, making sure Fernando looked good. When it came to the to the weigh-ins and all that, and during the fight, Fernando looked ripped, looked solid. There was there was times where my dad would want to do more rounds with Fernando, and Fernando was just so tired, and and his body was just so tired that he couldn't do the work that my dad wanted him to do. We uh, we had a couple of our friends from Oxnard in training camp. Uh, with with us also, and then the few times that we that we ran in the in the mountains or or in the by the lake, Fernando was always falling behind all these guys, and Fernando would never want to be behind anybody. Fernando always was always the leader when it came to to running and stuff like that. He never wanted anybody to beat him. Look, my my dad my dad is is, is an old school trainer who who always trained me and and Fernando. The hard way, you know, my dad had no idea, you know, what vitamins a fighter should take or, 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 or supplements or, or energy drinks or none of that. It was, it was more old school. It's no accident that Garcia mentioned supplements there. 
After the De La Hoya fight, Vargas tested positive for the anabolic steroid Stenozolol. Vargas pled ignorance, indicating that Ali gave him pills and Fernando was unaware that they contained substances on the Nevada Commission's banned list. Vargas accepted responsibility and was fined $100,000 and suspended for nine months, and he stayed consistent on his attitude about the failed drug test 16 years later. Look, I had had two physical trainers, and at this point in time, I'm not pointing any fingers but to myself. You got to be a man at the end of the day. And, you know, I'm not going to blame him. I'm not going to, I'm going to blame myself because at the end of the day, it will. Nobody injected me with nothing, and there was pills that was given, and that I didn't know that there was pills that could be also steroids. I never knew that. And look, if I knew, I would have never gone to three different places, three clinics after the fight. They're they're registered. I tried to look at they were closed, and the last one I went to the hospital by myself to give a urine test. If, if, if I knew after the fight, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to go. Why did I go willingly by myself to go give a urine test if I knew that I was uh, that, I, that, I, that I was taking illegal substances? Why? Hey, you know, it makes no sense, right? But, you know, I blame nobody but myself. You know, at the end of the day, I tell my kids, you got to be a man. You got to, if, if, if something is shown to be like, you know, and you're in a position where you should have crossed your T's and, and dotted your eyes. You should have asked what those things were. You should have asked what those pills were. You should have asked what those vitamins were. Instead of just being, oh, you know, they know what they're doing. I blame nobody but myself. And that's it. In November 2002, a small quantity of a substance identified as a steroid was found in Mazen Ali's home in an unrelated incident. But it must be noted that there is no evidence that he provided steroids to Vargas. And as best I can tell, Ali has never admitted to doing so. We have Fernando's word, insinuations made by Philbin after the fight, and assorted forms of circumstantial evidence pointing in that direction. But we can't know definitively. I tried to reach Ali to interview him for this podcast, but both an attempt to contact him over Facebook and the voicemail left at his New Jersey gym got no response. One thing is for sure, though. Vargas's body looked different at the weigh-in on September 13th and during the fight the following night than it ever had before. I asked Joel De La Hoya what stood out most to him from the fight, and his first response was, quote, how freaking huge Vargas was. Well, we all know why now, right? I mean, yeah, we know what happened in that camp, uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, allegedly, right? Uh, yeah, I remember the weigh-in, uh, how monstrous Vargas was a kid had muscles upon muscles. He had muscles on his ears. It was scary. <laughs> I, I can remember, uh, Rolando Arellano, his co-manager, uh, now works for golden boy, uh, rubbing him down with baby oil in the back behind the curtains before we walked out. And, and Vargas comes out and he just, he just looks ripped. And Oscar, you know, he, it's second fight at 154. So, you know, he, he's, you know, he's got some nice definition, but, but I mean, he, he's not a bulky, you know, massive guy. And I'm thinking to myself, holy crap. And, and, and now when you think about it in hindsight, uh, he had said in an inter- interview one time, Vargas did that, you know, Mexicans aren't supposed to look like that. You know, they eat beans and tortillas and 
you're not supposed to have a chiseled body. And then you wonder why after, you know, the whole debacle with the, whatever he was faking that his coach was giving up. So I'm thinking, wow, okay, that, no wonder he looks this way. But then come fight night, uh, in the ring, I mean, he looked that much, all that water weight, he just looked so much bigger. It's like, oh my goodness, this guy's a light heavyweight. A sellout crowd of 11,425 filled the Mandalay Bay Events Center on September 14, 2002 to watch 29-year-old Oscar De La Hoya with his record of 34-2, and 27 knockouts, in his second fight as a 154-pounder, take on 24-year-old Fernando Vargas with his record of 22-1, and 20 knockouts, who, at least according to Joel De La Hoya, looked like a 175-pounder. There were no unofficial day-of-the-fight weights revealed on the HBO pay-per-view broadcast, but it was plain to see that Vargas was the bigger man. It didn't take long for the difference in pure physical strength to make an imprint on the fight, as Jim Lampley recalls. I mean, there was a moment in the first round of the fight when uh, Vargas got Oscar to the ropes and landed a body shot, and they were directly across the ring from me. And Oscar's eyes got as big as saucers. I mean, there was this look in his eyes like, what in the world was that? As though he had never been hit with the kind of shot that Vargas hit him with. Now Vargas lands a big left hook counter upstairs. Drives Deloy into the ropes. Deloy close to being knocked down there. Ducks and slips. Gets away. And already you see the difference. When Vargas has Deloy against the ropes, it's a different fight. Big right hand by Vargas. Deloy slips that one. Oscar Deloy was stunned by the counter left hook. He was he was physically strong. Um, he he almost yeah he almost had me knocked out in the first round. Um, I was holding on to dear life. Uh, his punches were weren't fast, weren't crisp, but but it was kind of like a like a thumping you know very heavy-handed type of punch. Um, he was he was a fighter that that just brute strength. I mean it, it was incredible how you know how strong he was. De La Hoya came back to his corner after round one with a big red bruise on his right cheek, but he shook off the scare to bounce back and box well enough to probably win round two. In round three, though, Vargas took over, landing 22 power punches, according to CompuBox, compared to just three for Oscar. Back and forth they went over the first half of the fight, with De La Hoya taking the even-numbered rounds and Vargas taking the odds, with Oscar winning when they stood at ring center and Fernando scoring points when he moved his rival to the ropes. Here's a sampling of some of the dramatic action, as called by Lampley, Merchant, and George Foreman in the middle rounds. Hard right hand by Vargas. Landed flush. That's because that left hand is so low by Oscar. And now Oscar's back is against the ropes again. And Vargas takes over, pounding him to the body. Good left uppercut by Del Hoya. Gets in a punch to the body as well. As you heard at the very start of the podcast, Lampley said in the fifth round that De La Hoya had taken more punishment to that point than in any five rounds of any of his other fights. Here's Oscar, whose nose was bleeding for much of the fight, on the challenge he was up against. I had to use my head. Okay, what do I do to offset his, his power? In a lot of these rounds, in between uh, maybe the fifth, sixth, or seventh round, I had to I had to sometimes stand in front of him and take the punches and absorb them so I can maybe 
defuse him, you know, and 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 his and his head, his mind, his 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 strength, and it actually worked. When when he saw with with his own eyes that I could take the punch, that kind of like held him back just a bit. He he now was very cautious at at, at what he was throwing at me. Physically, it was it was the toughest fight. I mean, he kept coming back, back and forth, back and forth. We were, uh, it, I mean, it was like rock'em sock'em robots, and uh, obviously conditioning conditioning was going to be key let's see who can outlast who it was plain to see by the end of the fifth round that conditioning was becoming a factor de la Hoya was barely breathing as he returned to his corner vargas was beginning to look exhausted i asked robert garcia if vargas's training camp in which fernando wasn't entirely letting eduardo garcia call the shots was the reason vargas slowed after the fifth round i i really believe that you know uh I was there, so I know the running wasn't as good, the training in the gym wasn't as good as the Fernando that, that used to prepare himself when he fought I Corte, Raul Marquez, Jordi Boycampas, those type of fights. He did not have that, that, that type of training that, that he used to have. For that, it was more about, you know, that conditioning coach uh, focusing on, on Fernando looking good and looking ripped and, and being muscular. The bulk of the credit, however, for the fight pivoting toward Oscar around the midway point has to go to Oscar himself. While Vargas was looking worse for wear due to a gash on his right cheek that opened up in round six, De La Hoya was looking fresher. And in round eight in particular, he deviated from his signature weapons, the left jab and left hook, and began firing a punch that he'd barely used in the first seven rounds, a punch Vargas wasn't expecting, as Carl Moretti explains. He used the straight right hand, which bothered Vargas. That's really what I thought the difference was. It was, man, where did this, because he never had a really a right hand that, you know, you'd have to worry about. But that right hand was uh, uh, prevalent the whole night, and the straight right down the pipe was catching it. So you could see Fernando, okay, now i got to worry about the right hand. So now he's worried about the right hand, and then here comes the left hook, you know, which was his best punch. So really, from an in-the-ring point of view, I was shocked at his use of the right hand and his effectiveness as a right hand. Joel De La Hoya gives praise to Mayweather for helping Oscar develop that right hand. And that's one thing we were working on in camp, that right hand. If you notice, he was you know, pretty much a one-handed fighter. You know, the left hook, that was bread and butter. Yeah, 45, like Roberto used to call it, Roberto Alcazar. It's 45, it's kind of like a hybrid between a, a, an uppercut and the uh, left hook. You know, came in at that 45-degree angle, hence the 45. So Floyd worked on that right hand throughout that whole camp. Here's Oscar on his game plan, tailored to Vargas's fighting mentality. He was angry inside the ring. He that's the way he fought. I mean, but that it worked for him. Vargas was 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 always you know he always had a chip on his shoulder. But that's who that's that's what made Vargas. That's exactly how he fought inside the ring. My game plan was to to confuse him, to to show him several styles whether it was just using my jab and working my jab to the body and to the head, or whether it was faking him, fainting him out, and checking him with the left hook, and I would never throw the right hand, but we saved it. We saved it so he can, so he can get comfortable, okay, and put his hands down. So what happens in the, sure enough, in the seventh round, I can see that I can see his left hand going lower and lower and lower. I said, okay, boom, this is the moment. Let's go out in the eighth round, ninth round, 10th round, and, and fire that right hand. And when I was firing it, I was landing it at will. And now Vargas begins to come back and shows the determination that has defined his career. Vargas ripped. 
again. And it's all happening because Vargas get close. When he's close, he takes over. Just when it seemed De La Hoya was going to start running away with the fight, Vargas found a second wind in the ninth round, doubling his 38 punches thrown in the previous frame with 76 in round nine. Vargas won the round, but he also might have spent the last of his energy. Here's Joel De La Hoya on the middle and latter stages of the fight. Up until, yeah, that sixth, seventh round, that's when uh, I can see Vargas slowing down a bit. Oscar had sensed it as well, and... Uh, that's kind of when he, he got on his toes a little bit more, dropping his hands a little bit more, uh, dropping those right hands, working the body a little bit more. Uh, just started having a little bit more, more fun. That was the thing with Floyd Sr. Have fun in there. You know, have fun. Uh, let loose. Don't, don't be so uptight. You know, let your hands flow. And we worked this beautiful combination. End of the 10th round where he goes to the body, then he comes back up on top with that left hook to the head where he rocks him at the end of the round. That was one of the combinations we were working on. And it worked to a charm. It was a beautiful combination. And that's kind of what started pretty much the end of the, of the fight. Again, the blood flowing from Eloia's nose. Again, the blood flowing from Vargas's feet. Big left hook hurts Vargas. Eloia tries to follow up. Bell saves Vargas to end the round. That was the call at the very end of round 10, as Oscar landed the combination his brother was talking about. Here's Vargas on the effect of that punch. I was in the corner, and the world was turning. And then in the tenth, he hurt me. And I'm like, everything, the world's turning. Only a fighter knows, right, when he's been hurt. And I said to myself, I'm hurt as fuck right now. I said, the smart thing would be for me to grab hold of Oscar and don't let him go. Don't let him go until I can get, you know, my, my feet under me. But then I, I said, that was what the angel said, right? The angel said, grab him, hold him. That's a smart thing to do. That way you can get your feet under you. You can get back into the fight. And you'll be all right. You'll win the fight. You've been putting effective pressure from that the whole fight. And you've been almost getting him out, knocking him out the ring almost. So the angel was like, hold them. Then the devil goes, you're going to give him the satisfaction of saying you're holding them? And I said, you're right. Let's go. Heading into the 11th round, De La Hoya led 96-94 on two scorecards, while Vargas was up 97-94 on the third. Vargas didn't hold on. And here's what happened. A sensational left hook by Deloya. Again, he set it up with body punches. When I heard him in the in at the end of the tenth round, I knew instantly that I had him because the, his armored suit that he walked in with. Well, now he has kinks, and, and you know, so so I knew I was like I knew I was getting him little by little. But when I heard him in that in that in that last seconds of, 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 of that 10th round I took my time in the 11th I took my time in the 11th because I knew I had him I knew that I if, if, if I have patience if I have patience and work on the combination that we were working on in the gym if I can throw it in the 11th round I knew I could knock him out Vargas beat the count but it was only a matter of time and it was up to referee Joe Cortez to find the appropriate moment to halt the fight as De La Hoya followed up 
Here's Cortez recalling what he was seeing and thinking in that moment. He was able to connect uh, Fernando with a good left hook and put him down. And then uh, Fernando was able to make beat the count, got up. But I got close to the action. I already saw that Fernando was already fatigued with setting in. And his arms were dropping. And he was more vulnerable to get hit with, with combinations and good punches. And Oscar went after him and got him up against the corner, against the ropes. And uh, that's the danger zone there. And that's when I got real close to the action. And I was waiting for the exact moment. I saw that Fernando was just trying to cover up and go more on the defense. But uh, he got trapped in that corner. Oscar had him right where he wanted him. Threw those flurry of punches. And I rightfully stopped the fight to prevent him from taking unnecessary punishment. That flurry, I mean, I, I, I was a fighter that loved throwing combinations, loved throwing fast punches and bunches. So when I when I had that opportunity, I just took it. I, I, I remember throwing, I don't know, it was maybe 10, 12, 14 unanswered punches. And so once the referee stopped it, I was relieved. I was I could now take a breather, you know, and I and, and I remember I remember throwing my mouthpiece out and uh, and I believe I kneeled down and I was just like, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, because it was a tough fight. Lampley's call of the end of the fight is considered one of his signature moments behind the microphone. Although, surprisingly, Lampley has regrets about it. I overtalked. I uh, I got overly excited because I had so much of the story in me and in my head, and I started shouting all this stuff about this would be the biggest you know win of his career. This would be the most satisfying thing that ever happened in his career if he could if he could knock this guy out. You know. And he did it as I was saying all that. Don't get that lucky most of the time. Or unlucky, as it were, because I still think when I, when I listen to it, I cringe. I was, you know, I was too excited. I was over-talking. I was taking over the telecast, etc. But at the end of the day, I was telling the story. And, and I think the story I told was accurate because I do believe that that was the most satisfying win of Oscar's career. Boxing fans know how the fight ended. They've seen it replayed countless times. What they don't know is a side story that developed in the 11th round. HBO's cameras missed it entirely, but Robert Garcia didn't. I don't know if anybody recalls or if, it, if there's any anything on video, but the first time Oscar dropped Fernando, if you go back to the video, I was I was arguing and I was screaming at the at the ref because nobody even paid attention to it, nobody listened to me, nobody heard me, nobody cared about what I said, but when, when Fernando got dropped, Joel De La Hoya, Oscar's brother, jumped on the apron, on the outside of the ropes, but he was inside on the ring, jumping, celebrating already. And, and that, the fight didn't end there. The fight continued after that. You know, he went down and the fight continued. But, you know, for him, he jumped on 
on the apron to celebrate. And uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, that that's, that he should have been penalized or maybe he would have been disqualified. You know, I'm sure Fernando wouldn't have won to win the fight like that, and none of us would have liked to get a win like that. But but he did do that. He did jump on the apron, and and I try to uh, tell the ref, but nobody really cared. Nobody really paid attention to to what I had to say. If a cornerman climbs onto the ring apron and risks disqualification, and the TV cameras don't catch it, did it happen? In this case, yes. Joel De La Hoya tells the full story. Okay, so when Oscar drops Vargas in the eleventh round, I get super, super excited. I start climbing up on the. I thought the fight was over because, I from my vantage point, Cortez was kind of blocking my view. I thought he had waved it off, so I'm going up into the ring, you know, climbing up the ring, thinking it's over. You know, I'm going up there to celebrate. And security starts pulling me down, pulling me. I'm fighting everybody. Like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. And before I know it, I'm handcuffed. I'm pulled out into the tunnel. So I'm watching my brother celebrate in the ring while I'm handcuffed in the tunnel, watching everybody celebrating the victory. I'm like, holy shit, what am I doing? Then all of a sudden my lawyer, you know, meets me there and tells him I'm the brother. They, they thought I was some nut just trying to jump up on the ring. They didn't know who that guy was. But yeah, you can, uh, Robert uh, Garcia was uh, working the corner of Vargas. And I think he started protesting that. But obviously, you know, nothing ever came of it. So, but yeah, I, I got, I got, <laughs> we got close to getting DQ. <laughs> Imagine that. And it's funny because you see, uh, you know, for every fight after a victory, I would, you know, uh, I would pick up Oscar you know, to celebrate, to lift him up. And so you can see right after the fight, you know, he's kind of looking around like for a split second and like, hey, where's, where's my brother? <laughs> Eventually, Oscar and Joel found each other to celebrate and the celebration continued when the pay-per-view receipts rolled in. Bad Blood was the second largest grossing non-heavyweight pay-per-view ever to that point, behind only De La Hoya Trinidad. It had been an outstanding fight, a successful promotion, a crowning victory for Oscar, and a gallant defeat for Vargas, whose post-fight drug test results didn't come back until several weeks later. It seemed a reasonable time for the two fighters to consider burying the hatchet. A meeting was called. Both Oscar and Fernando told me about this meeting without prompting. It was memorable to both of them. But their recollections of what went down are completely different. Here's Oscar. A week after the fight, where things were still very tense, because he wanted a rematch. Uh, a week after the fight, I called for a meeting. I reached over to his people and, and, we, and we set up a meeting actually in a restaurant uh, in Pasadena where I live in California. And I remember, I remember sitting down in the restaurant and the restaurant's empty. I'm sitting on, uh, on the table and in comes Vargas. And the first thing he tells me is, you didn't beat me. And I'm thinking in my head like, what are you talking about? I knocked you out. You didn't beat me. I want a rematch. I want the rematch. I want the rematch. And so I tried to shake his hand and he didn't shake it and then I just left the restaurant. And that, that was the first time that I tried to extend uh, an olive branch. And, and I left it alone. After that, I just left it alone. And here's how Fernando tells the story. Me and Oscar, after the fight, we met in a restaurant and in L.A. Because I wanted to ask him for a rematch. So I went in. And um, we sat down, and I told him, look, Oscar, you're not going to make no money fighting Shane. You're not going to make no money fighting anybody but me. 
you know, because regardless whether you like it or not, we might not like each other, but one thing is that we do make together, and that's a lot of money. So, uh, you know, you beat me. I took my hand off to you. You beat me, and um, you're the better man, but I want a rematch. And then he goes, you're right. Right, Fernando. And I will give you a rematch. But can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He goes, why do you hate me so much? I go, what? Are you fucking serious? You're going to look me in the eyes and tell me you don't you don't remember what what went down when I was a kid up there training with you in Big Bird? He goes, no, I don't. I go, Oscar, I took out my glasses. Look me in the eyes and tell me that you don't fucking remember that when we're, I was running with Robert through the snow, through the trail, and I ate shit, and I had mud and snow all in my fucking face, and then you walked around by, and you smiled, and you laughed. Don't you remember that shit? Because no, man, I don't remember. But you know what? If I did do that, I'm sorry. And when he said that to me, he apologized. Maybe he remembered, maybe he didn't, but I'm glad that he apologized. He gave me his hand, and I go, awesome, man. You know, thank you. That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. Maybe the wound started to heal that day at that restaurant. Maybe not. But with few exceptions, even the most bitter of rivals inside the ring eventually choose respect over rancor. The rematch Vargas wanted never happened, and both men were able to move forward. Vargas, now 41 years old, has mellowed out a fair bit since his fighting days. He relocated from Southern California to Las Vegas, where he owns and operates a boxing gym in a poor section of town that helps to keep kids off the street, giving them a place to work out and even do their homework with help from tutors after school. One of the supporters of his charitable Fernando Vargas Fighting Foundation is none other than Oscar De La Hoya, now 45 and the president of Golden Boy Promotions. This is a relatively recent development, but the bad blood is behind them, as both explained to me. It was until recently that that we uh, we have made a, a pact that we're, we're we're friends now, and I we I'm actually supporting uh, his foundation that uh, some uh, amateur boxing tournament that he's putting together to raise funds, you know, for underprivileged kids, and so I'll, I'm going to be the main sponsor, and so we're so we're actually we're actually very cordial to each other, we respect each other, so yeah, it's it's uh, it, but it only happened recently, last couple of years, basically. He's a real good dude, you know. I'm sure he thinks of me differently than than what he thought of me, you know. And I and I think of him differently of what I thought about him, you know. Since I've been able to to get to know him a little bit, so he's a good good dude and helps out my foundation. Thinks about the kids, and so that's really, you know, pleasant of him for him to do that. Here's Robert Garcia on the importance of De La Hoya and Vargas developing a respectful relationship. There's no friends in, inside the ring when you're inside the ring, but outside of the ring, everybody should get along and everybody should be friends and everybody should should respect each other and support each other. You know, then finally being able to talk and 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 work together, it's good to see that. You know, after all that years of bad blood and bad blood, and finally you know being able to get along and talk to each other, I think it's great. You know, Oscar's always been a great person, so I. It's not Oscar that was probably holding that. I think it was more Fernando's pride and Fernando's anger towards Oscar. But I'm glad that he finally realized that, you know, this is a sport. And I'm sure he accepted Oscar was the better man. And Oscar Oscar is a great person. So why not get along and, and work together? 
Is the knockout of Vargas Oscar's greatest win? Among his biggest fights against elite opponents, many of which ended in close decisions one way or the other, it's probably his most emphatic. It was a defining win for Oscar, especially as a Mexican-American fighter, as Larry Merchant reflects. I think that it was a hard-fought fight for him to win over his own people, so to speak. And it took fight by fight and a whole career for him. And maybe beating Vargas was the, the last part of that. But uh, you can't make people love you. And for one reason or another, they held back on Oscar. In hindsight, uh, Oscar was an important guy in boxing, and he fought everybody and didn't always win, but always fought them. And he had a, a great career and is a transformative figure in modern boxing. As for Vargas, the question looking back is whether he could have had a better career had the Trinidad fight not happened had he been matched less aggressively. Vargas won multiple title belts, and though he lost his two biggest fights, he forced the best out of his opponents both times. I asked Jim Lampley, was this about as good as Fernando Vargas was ever going to be? I think that was about as good as he was ever going to be, losing close to the likes of Oscar De La Hoya. The thing I always said about Fernando was that he had terrific skills. He had a boxing mind. Uh, if he saw the way he beat Ike Quarte, you could not deny that he, he knew how to box and he knew how to find an opponent's weak point and uh, exploit it. There were a lot of really good things about him, but he did not have superstar quickness. He didn't have that, that extra flash, that, that dynamism that Oscar had, that Trinidad had, that Chain had. Uh, you know, they were all in his, in his arena uh, in his area at that time, and all of them were a beat quicker than Fernando. And at the end of the day, uh, the thing that separates superstars from stars or stars from good fighters, to me, is quickness. Can you do something that your opponent doesn't immediately see because you do it so quickly? Truly great fighters have that. Fernando did not. In 2002, it would have been almost impossible to get Vargas to say something in praise of De La Hoya. But this is 2018. Vargas isn't interested in lying to himself or anyone else about the man he spent so much of his amateur and professional career measuring himself against. Oscar's the best fighter that I fought. Technically the best fighter. Like, if you threw a jab downstairs and you didn't put your right hand in front of you, he was going to make you pay with the right hand over the top. So, you know, very quick hands. Also, he has power. Um... But, you know, the best technical fighter, the best fighter that I found, that I fought pound for pound will be awesome. This has been Bloodsport, the story of Oscar De La Hoya versus Fernando Vargas, presented by the HBO Boxing Podcast. I'd like to thank all of my interview subjects for their time. Oscar De La Hoya, Fernando Vargas, Jim Lampley, Larry Merchant, Robert Garcia, Joel De La Hoya, Carl Moretti, and Joe Cortez. Additional thanks go out to Tom Costello for his musical direction and to everyone who has been a part of the HBO Boxing Podcast over the past five years, most notably my longtime co-host Kieran Mulvaney and our editor at HBO.com, Michael Gluckstadt, who made the podcast a reality and whose idea was to produce oral history style episodes like this one and its three predecessors, Still Standing, The Story of Hopkins vs. Trinidad, 
Unrealized, the story of Ika Bayabuchi, the great lost heavyweight, and The Prince and the Flash, the story of Nassim Hamed versus Kevin Kelly. You can find all of these podcasts on the HBO Boxing page on SoundCloud. On behalf of the whole Inside HBO Boxing team, I'm Eric Raskin. Thanks for listening.